0: featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham.
1: Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope, and I'm so glad that you tuned in today I'm so excited when I talk to my guests before the show and find out a little bit about their stories and what they have to share because each and every one of them has an incredible story of coming to a place in their life where they felt hopeless and that's one of the reasons this show has been so successful because in this particular time in our lives it seems that more and more people are facing hopeless situations and what this show offers is tidbits, helps, encouragement, being able to relate with other people who have gone through similar things and We all have, no matter where we come from, our backgrounds, our financial backgrounds, our educational backgrounds, where we grew up, where we live in this world, we need to hear stories of encouragement and hope. And so I'm so glad to be able to present those to my listeners. And also listeners, I thank you. I thank you for your support. I thank you for your comments, for your reviews. It's always exciting to hear who's listening where on this incredible globe of ours. We are now Reaching over 120 countries with the message of hope through never, ever give up hope. Thank you so much. Today, with me, I have Deborah Malone. And Deborah is a novelist, she's also an award winning author. She was nominated for the 2012 and the 2013 Georgia Author of the Year Award in the novel category. She has also worked as a freelance writer and photographer for the historic magazine Georgia Backroads. She's also been featured in other magazines. One thing I appreciate in reading over the bio that Uh, Deborah supplied to me was that even though she is a novelist, she has an unbelievable story to share. And so today we're going to do a twofold. We are going to share her story and how she became a successful author, and also share the novels that she's written with you. And even though Deborah is a successful writer, She's had to overcome extreme personal crises and circumstances. And that's what we're going to start today to, sh- to have her share with you. And she's also going to share how you can work through your own goals or towards your own goals in the midst of challenging circumstances. In other words, she's a woman that said, there's no excuse. I'm pushing ahead. I'm pushing forward. I'm overcoming what I'm going through, and I'm going to be creative through it. And that's how her novels were born. Welcome, Deborah.
2: Oh, thank you, Carol. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Now, I know that you've always wanted to be a writer. And you had been going through some really tough times, even as a child. So let's start by sharing your story and also any part of that that you want to share regarding your writing or whatever therapy you use to get through those times.
2: Okay. Um, I remember as a child... um, feeling such an overwhelming sense of responsibility, and that was born out of the fact that my mother, when she was 12, um, she had Stills disease, which is what they call juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, She was very sick. They didn't know what she had. Uh, She had high fevers. uh, She lost all of her hair. She was in bed. And it was a long time before they diagnosed what she had. And so she was bedridden for a couple years um, as a child. And then she went into remission. And she um, met my dad in Cincinnati. (laughs) She was from Cincinnati. My dad was from Opelika, Alabama. So you talking about... um, country meets the city that's kind of what happened and he um, you know they fell in love they got married and my two older brothers were born in Cincinnati and I believe probably having children um, made her arthritis flare up again and in 19, my dad worked for General Electric Company. So in 1953, he was transferred to Rome, Georgia, where I live now. And I think that's because he wanted to get back close to his family. But um, I was born in 1954. So by the time I was old enough to realize what was going on, mother had become very, very ill. Um she was walking on crutches or she was either in a wheelchair. She spent many days in the hospital. And a lot of times we had to go to uh, people's house to stay. And I remember my dad telling me sometimes he would leave us at night asleep to go check on mother at the hospital. Um but the, the first thing, feeling that responsibility, was I was in the first grade. We didn't have kindergarten back in those days. And I didn't want to get on the bus because I did not want to leave my mother. I mm. was concerned, you know, something would happen to her while mm-hmm. I was gone. And, you know, who's going to take care of her? If wow. I'm not there to take care of her, who's going to take care of her? And for a six-year-old child, you can't voice that. I can look back now and see it as clear as day. Mm. But back then, I couldn't give voice to my feelings. I don't even know if I knew exactly what was going on. Mm-hmm. But um, so what it came out in was temper tantrums. And <laughs> I wouldn't get on the bus. And so my mom, she wasn't able to make me get on the bus. So she would call dad and dad would come and take me to school. And that happened several times until the principal said one day, he said, um, well, let me give you a mental picture of the principal. Now, my dad was big. He was he was over six feet. But the principal, he was even bigger and and rounder, to say the least. And he went around with this big fat cigar sticking out of his mouth all the time so he was scary to a (laughs) six-year-old and he said Mr. Brinkley he said let me take care of this you go on back to work well after that spanking believe me I got on the bus oh my (laughs) word Yes, after that. Um, But that was just that sense that that feeling of responsibility that I had for mother and that that would follow me the rest of my life, actually.
1: That's very interesting that you said that, because when I was born, my mother was dying. And so I never really thought of it that way until you brought that up today. Thank you. That's extremely interesting because I felt that responsibility too. Like it was up to me to take care of her. That's basically what you, it doesn't matter who else was there, but it was up to you, right?
2: Right, right. Amazing. Absolutely. Okay, continue,
1: mm-hmm. please.
2: Um, and I, I, um, I don't know, you know, I guess dad grew up on the farm and And his mother, he was four when his mother died. And his father remarried and married a woman that was uh, uh, younger than his oldest sister, which that wasn't unusual back then uh, because they worked on the farm and they had a lot of children. And um, dad only went to the eighth grade because he had to quit school and work on the farm. Uh And he was a very strong-willed man, to put it nicely. And he had a temper. And I remember as a young child um, going to a friend of theirs in the middle of the night. And I remember the lady opened the door. And I can remember saying, Daddy hit mother again. Mm. And so there was, um, abuse in the family and there, I just remember a few times of dad ever getting to that point, but there was a lot of arguing back Mm -hmm. and forth. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of grew up with that. Then by the time, um, my brothers were older than I was, you know, I began taking the responsibility of having to cook and clean on the weekends. Um, and so I, I would take, um, reading. I love to read. And and I would take a book and I would get on top of the basement steps and just kind of curl up and read my book and kind of hide, you know, I was away from everybody and away from that responsibility for a while. And the books took me away. And so I don't ever remember a time that I didn't love to read. And so my... Books were my savior during that time. And probably still are. Yes. I very (laughs) much, very much still love to read. That went on, you know, till I was 19. When I turned 19, I met my husband. We fell head over heels in love. And we were married um, from the time I met him till the time we were married was three months.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: And... Believe me, 19 is way too young to get married. <laughs> and 3 months is not enough to know anybody. I kind of, you know, I think in the back of my mind I thought, well, you know, I'm going to I'll be away from all this responsibility and I can be on my own. Yes, yes. And I'll be a grown-up. Well, I think I pretty much um uh, jumped from the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> I did not know what I was getting into. And um, my husband and I both brought baggage into the marriage. And here I was, this person that I had a do or die attitude. I was going to do it or I was going to die doing it because Uh that's, that was that responsibility. Right. Uh, right. And my husband, bless his heart, his uh, parents had pretty much done everything for him. So, He was used to not having any responsibility, so he didn't have a chance when we got together. I just kind of rushed in and took over everything, and, (laughs) uh, you know, I resented the fact that I had to do it, and he resented the fact that he was doing it, so we kind of got off on on the wrong foot, but uh, probably, let's see, I think I had just turned 21, When our first daughter was born, and then Nikki was born, my second daughter was born in 1977, just a couple years later. Things were kind of rocking along. I remember saying to myself that with mom and dad arguing like they did, that I wasn't going to have a marriage like that. Right. But I did. You know, we did a lot of that, too. We had a lot of the arguing. But things rocked along. And when Nikki turned, she was almost four. Well, actually, from the time she was born, we noticed things weren't, you know, quite right. And she didn't, uh, she slept a lot, which is very unusual for a baby. You know, she slept through the night right away. Really? And I remember questioning, you know, asking the doctor about it. And he made the comment, well, what are you complaining about? Then she didn't walk till she was 16 months. Mm. Um, And, you know, we took her to the doctor for that. We took her to a specialist. And he said, "Yeah, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. And so she was almost four when she started having severe headaches and she would um when she'd have these headaches she would throw up and so after she would throw up I mean it was like a miracle her headache would go away
1: oh my goodness
2: so this kept happening I called her doctor and um unfortunately, he was very rude. He said it was on the weekend and he said, well, what do you want me to do? Start a case history over the phone? And I said, well, no, not really. I want you to find out what's going on. I insisted that they, you know, do some tests. So he admitted her. The next morning he came in and he said, he said, uh, Miss Malone, I don't treat behavior problems. Oh, my goodness. So that that afternoon, he had to come back after the test and tell me that Nikki was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it was a uh, medulloblastoma, which, which is a childhood brain tumor, malignant, and that um, she had probably had it since birth. And so those were the symptoms that she was having. This tumor was already causing problems even when she was little. How did did you handle that diagnosis? Uh, Not very well. Not very well at all. I remember crying and crying and just, um, you know, it was devastating. It was just absolutely devastating. But that, the diagnosis wasn't the worst of it. That was just the beginning. Oh, no. What happened? She had her. Well, she had her first surgery, and when she did, uh, she had some bleeding in her brain, and so they had to go back in and do a second surgery, and when they did that, she contracted meningitis, and so that by that time, she was pretty much on death's door, And they transferred her to another hospital, a pediatric hospital, and she would remain in a coma for three months. During that time, normally what they would do for someone who had this tumor was chemotherapy, but because she was so sick, they knew she wouldn't survive chemotherapy, so they gave her radiation instead. So she had the radiation during the time that she was in the coma, but uh, finally, they did get an antibiotic that brought her temperature down and um, eradicated the meningitis. By, but by that time, it had caused severe disabilities. So the Nikki we brought home from the hospital was not the Nikki we had taken to the hospital. She wasn't able to walk anymore. Her balance had been destroyed. And so she would remain in a wheelchair the rest of her life. How
1: old is she now? She is 39. What a journey you've had. And I can't even begin to imagine all the emotions you went through, all the trauma you went through, all the change you had to endure. But Where did you get the strength to endure the things that you had to go through in your life? There was many things that uh, you weren't planning on, I'm sure. And as they happened, you, you had to find your strength somewhere, someplace. Can you share that with us?
2: Sure, and uh, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, Faith has always been a big part of my life since I can remember. Uh, That's one thing I appreciate about my parents. Uh, My mother wasn't able uh, to go to church with us, but Dad made sure that we were there every time the doors were open. And um, you know, dad was a godly man and he loved God. And um, yes, he, he had his demons that he had to deal with. But that uh, background of going to church uh, gave my brothers and I a foundation for our faith in God. I admit that during the lowest times in my life, uh, there were times that my faith waned. But I never turned my back on God and he's always been faithful to me and I couldn't see it then when I was in the midst of things but I can look back now and see so many times when he worked in my life even even during the lowest times you know he was there and provided um And with my writing, he's opened so many doors uh, with my writing and speaking. Just say that that's, you know, that's the most important thing. Thank you, Deborah, for
1: sharing that. I'm sure that that'll be an encouragement to our listeners as well.
2: Well, I hope so. And something that I've learned through all of this is uh, that God's timing isn't always our timing. And if if something hasn't happened in your life that you've been working towards or your goals or whatever um you know just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it's not going to good point thank you
1: so continue your story it's amazing
2: we brought Nikki home and our life had changed it had been turned upside down it would never be the same my husband he had been abusive verbally but after Nikki uh returned home and I had I had there again I had a lot of responsibility as far as taking care of Nikki she required 24 hour a day care she could not be left alone and would have to have pretty much everything done for her you know there was a lot of stress and it was hard on her her sister because of so much time that I had to spend with Nikki but the abuse also escalated and it was verbal abuse And I would like to say, don't let anybody tell you that verbal abuse isn't as devastating as physical abuse. That's right. Because it definitely can be. It It destroys who you are from the inside out. And you have no confidence. You have no uh, self-worth. And I was to a point where I couldn't even make decisions You know, I I didn't even feel confident in making everyday decisions, like going to the grocery store and and picking out things at the grocery store. And
1: how did you deal with that?
2: Well, I didn't deal with that very well either. (laughs) And that went on um, basically for years. By that time, Nikki's sister uh, left home and she moved out to be on her own and to go to school. And this was probably in the early 90s. But in 1992, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which is a um, muscle pain disease, um, which causes you to be in constant pain. And I think part of that was because of all the physical that I had to do with Nikki. Mm. It pretty much, um, I think, destroyed my body. You know, my first thought was, well, how am I going to take care of Nikki? Uh and that was the most important thing but you know where there's a will there's a way probably it kept me getting up every day I probably would have just been in the bed but I had to get up and take care of Nikki and that's what I did and so in um, 1995 I decided well I, I started going to therapy and Through therapy, I decided that, you know, I wasn't going to just be in this situation and not do anything. And so I I went back to school. I went to work part time. During the day, she was at a day program. So it was like she went to school during the day so I could work or go to school during those hours. And then I would be home in the evening when she was home. And my husband was having problems at work. He had had several jobs. So I guess by 1999, the abuse had gotten so bad that um, I knew for my own safety that I was going to have to leave. I had tried to leave several times before and I would always come back. And, you know, people may say, well, why did you do that? But There's a lot of reasons, but I I think part of it was the fear of the unknown, you know, and how was I going to work full time and take care of Nikki, too, by myself? So that would always drive me back. But I I remember feeling really guilty because I would leave and then come back because I'd feel like a failure. My therapist told me, she said, she said, Debbie, she said, one day, she says, you're going to leave and nothing will make you go back. And she was right. <laughs> she was right. Because when I left, if I had had to live on the streets, I would have done it. I had. But fortunately, I didn't. I moved in with my dad. And I remember I took my computer and a few clothes and my school books. My dad lived in a, a real small mobile home by that point. And I moved in with him. And I was so physically and emotionally broken Aww. that... um I wasn't able to take care of Nikki by myself, so her dad would keep her some, and I would keep her some. So in May of that year, it was a really big month. I graduated from college. I turned forty-five, and my divorce was final <laughs> that month. At that point, you know, I was wanting to be able to be on my own, and I wanted to to uh, care for Nikki. So we moved into uh, an apartment, but it wasn't a good situation. Uh, It wasn't in a good neighborhood. So eventually I asked my dad, you know, I felt that it was better to be with him than where we were. I said, can we move back in? And he Mm. said, well, you know, of course you can. So we did. And by that time, dad was in his 80s. Shortly after I moved back in, dad started having some... um, really bad health issues. So I kind of wound up taking care of dad and Nikki both. I would do that for the next seven years. You know, we we did that. And, and dad, I had not been around dad for many years. He had, you know, he had his own life. He had uh, remarried at one point and I had my life. And so I had not been around him that much. But um, come to find out, he really hadn't changed a whole lot, and he was still very (laughs) strong-willed. So um, I was kind of dealing with that, too, uh, on top of taking care of his health needs. So we lived with him for seven years. At that point, I just could not do it anymore. Dad moved into assisted living and he probably lived about a year after that and he died from pneumonia but shortly after dad died nikki had been staying at um respite where she would go for the weekend and it would give me a little break and oh, i had that's told good. them well it was good but it didn't turn out so good i had oh. told them at the respite you know that you can't leave her alone uh, she could push her wheelchair, but oh. her mental ability, of course, had been affected also. And it was like a toddler who can walk, but they don't understand safety issues. Yes, and that's the way it was with Nikki. And of course, they left her alone, and she rode down. She did. They they were all outside her she didn't want to go outside well then she decides she wants to go outside so she opens the door and rolls down concrete steps onto a concrete landing and uh she was hurt very severely and we would find out i would find out just in months that what happened was it had damaged what she has a shunt in her brain that drains the excess fluid and it had damaged that shunt And when you do that, it causes a lot of problems. And so over the next year, she had two surgeries to replace the shunt two times, lots of intensive therapy to try to get her back to where she was. By the end of that, I knew I could not take care of Nikki by myself. My body had just pretty much shut down. I did, uh, was able to, through a government program, to have caregivers come in the house. Eventually, I started off with eight hours, but eventually I got caregivers 24 hours around the clock. That was kept Nikki at home, but it was very stressful. And two of the workers stayed the whole seven years, but most of the other workers, it was a big turnover. So you were constantly having different people come in it it was very stressful what i have what i failed to mention is is back in 2000 i had met a man i started dating and he was just so different from everything uh-huh. i had ever been around in men and we continued to date we fell in love and we knew it was serious um And we wanted to get married, but when we first started dating, his children were uh, quite a bit younger than mine. So they were still in school. Then by the time they were out of school, I was taking care of Nikki and Dad. And then, of course, I had the caregivers coming into my home. And I just didn't feel like that was a good situation Mm. for a married. So we chose uh, not to get married at the time. And I, I knew we would, I just couldn't see how it was going to happen. So during all this, I I was dating my fiance and that was a bright spot in my life. No kidding. Anyway, over the next seven years, you know, that was caring for Nikki and dealing with the caregivers. I come to the point now where Nikki transitions into the group home. But now my writing is... In I started writing like in two thousand one. So do I need to start telling you about the writing? Sure,
1: go ahead. Absolutely. It was okay. therapy for you through all of this, right? I mean Absolutely. You, def- you painted a picture now. You're showing us that you're basically frazzled. I mean you're being you know ripped from every side all your emotions your self-esteem your you know your your tenacity you're just you're pushing forward and so now let's talk about what you did yes to get through this which I believe is your writing correct
2: absolutely let me ask
1: you something first before you share that sure how did you motivate yourself to write
2: when you're going through all this well, that's what I'm fixing to tell you. okay, all right. <laughs> I had actually when I went back to school, I had uh, taking a um, creative writing course. It was required, so I had to take it, but it just sparked something in me that. Mm. You know, I just started writing short stories and poems and I just absolutely fell in love with writing. So that's basically, I just did it for fun. Then when I started dating Travis, we had gone out to eat one evening and had gone to this beautiful old historic restaurant. The restaurant wasn't old, but the building was old and he's, he's an architect and, you know, he knew right away the quality of the building. And we both loved this particular magazine about Georgia. It, at that time, it was called North Georgia Journal, which is now Georgia Backroads. And I said, you know, somebody needs to write a story about huh. this for North Georgia Journal. And he says, well, why don't you? And I said, well, okay, I will. I did. That's how I got started writing. And the publisher... um, An editor accepted it, but I had to go back to the restaurant to get some more pictures and to talk to the owner. Well, when I got there, she wasn't there, but her husband was. And he said, I said, well, I need to speak to Miss So-and-so, you know, I need to to talk to her some more. And he looked at me and he said, well, I'm sorry, she ran off with the cook over the weekend. (laughs) And that's pretty much my reaction. (laughs) I started to laugh until I saw these big crocodile tears rolling down his eyes. And he was, he was telling the truth she actually had. So we sat there and we talked and he poured out the whole story and like a good reporter, I sat there and listened. And Mm. after it was all over, I thought, hmm, no wonder she ran off with the cook over the weekend. But uh, needless to say, the story did not get published. And that's, that is the roller coaster ride of writing. Yes. Sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. Mm-hmm. And I was up one one minute and the next it was the agony of defeat. But I didn't stop. I had I had been bitten by the writing bug. So I wrote <laughs> another article and it was accepted. So I wrote for them for years. But a couple years after I had written for the magazine I decided I wanted to write a book. And so I started doing research and I started writing. And during this time now, I'm still taking care of dad and Nikki both. And when I started my book, I I would um, maybe write a paragraph and dad would call me from one end of the house and I'd jump up and go see what he wanted and come back and write another paragraph. And Nikki had to go to the bathroom. So I'd go take care of her needs and come back. And uh, believe it or not, I finished the book. And I finished half of another book. But by that time, Dad was really sick. I had to put it away. So I didn't stop writing for the magazine, but I did put the books away and and didn't do any more work on them for um, maybe two or three years. It might have been longer than that, come to think of it. But anyway, when the caregivers came in and that freed me up, I was able... um, to have more time and one day I was reading a book and I thought, you know that is what I want my book to be like. And so I got my books out, I blew off the dust and I learned as much as I could about writing and I rewrote my first book and that took probably two or three years to rewrite it and to do what I wanted to do with it and um, I had started a uh, blog, trying to get my name out there, and I would uh, review books and and, um, post on my blog while I was writing. When I submitted it, it really didn't take long before a small publisher uh, offered me a contract, and so that's how my first book was published, and that was 2011. And that book was? The name of that book was, uh, you're going to love this, Death and Dahlonega. Uh, Dahlonega <laughs> Dahlonega is a town in the mountains of Georgia and that word actually means yellow because Dahlonega was what one of the first gold rush towns so uh, that's where that name comes from it's a it's an Indian word
1: so is it strictly fiction or does it have truth and fiction or
2: what is it It, it has both um, it is the story itself is fiction In all of my books, the settings are real. So if you're familiar with the area, you would recognize the name of a restaurant, the Mm -hmm. name of a street. I try to make it, you know, just as real as it can be. Mm -hmm. And um, I also have history that is woven through the book. So, of course, the history is true, but the story itself is fiction. So it's kind kind of unique.
1: Any of your own stories from your own life, do you draw from
2: that at all? Oh, absolutely, yeah, especially I have two series, and especially in the first series, I think writers sometimes uh, draw from their experiences a lot of times, and uh, I might change it up a little bit, but uh, anybody that knows me really well is going to know some of the stories in the book.
1: (laughs) So tell us a little bit about the stories, tweak our interests
2: there. Well, the main character, Trixie Montgomery, happens to be a journalist for a magazine. And where I got that concept from, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, and she travels around, her and her friend, and her friend's name is Dee Dee. And Dee Dee is actually made up of two of my friends. And I asked their permission Mm -hmm. although nobody would know that's who it was but I still ask was you know do you mind if I do this and oh they thought it was great and then also um, Trixie is divorced she has gone through a really bad divorce and so there's a lot of similarities to my life
1: and what kind of novels are they are they romantic are they
2: strictly historical they are called um, cozy mysteries okay which means they are light, and f- and most of them are funny. The characters are quirky. There are there's kind of like a recipe for cozy mysteries. The uh, murder always takes place off stage. So you'll never see the murder happen. And the protagonist, who is your main character, is uh, not going to be a law enforcement officer. It's going to be your everyday person. They're going to have an everyday job. So they're an amateur. They're not going to be professional. Um, It's usually in a small town or village where it takes place. So, you know, you kind of stick with that recipe for the cozy mysteries.
1: And who would enjoy your stories? Your, your novels?
2: Well, that's very interesting. I have men and women both who read my stories, and even though they're written for adults, they are very young adult friendly.
1: Okay. And
2: I have several young adults that have read all my books, and it just thrills my heart <laughs> uh, to see young people reading them. So I would say basically anybody. And do you feel
1: that you are using using your novels as a type of therapy, not only for yourself, which is obvious, but what about for your readers? Can they get lost in the stories when they relate and possibly find some encouragement through that?
2: Yes, definitely. And and my main goal in writing the cozy mysteries is that I hope that after somebody has had a challenging day, whatever they're having to face in in their life, if they've had a hard day at work, or if they're a caregiver, if they've had a lot of stress on them, that they can sit down and read one of my books. They're very easy reading, and they're short. They're not real long novels, and I want them to have a laugh out loud moment oh and excellent! that is my goal is just for it to take them away and probably like it took me away when I was a child and had all that responsibility I
1: like that what it how many novels do you have out there
2: I have six I have two series my first series is uh the Trixie Montgomery cozy mystery series and she is a journalist and my second series um is Sky Sutherland cozy mystery series i have two books in that i have four in the first one and she she is an interior decorator and she's uh, married her husband is deals in very rare antiques so they're they're rich they have lots of money so she can travel anywhere she wants to and that makes it kind of fun too no kidding yeah you get <laughs> lost
1: you can get lost in that very easily and yes so what, and what about deborah what about what about her story as far as um your romance?
2: Oh yes. Like I was talking about the caregivers. I had um I guess it was going on eight years that I had the caregivers and my main character caregiver that during the day that worked with us and she had been with us the whole time and she was kind of like a second mom to Nikki and she was in a car accident. And she really wasn't able to care for Nikki. By that time, I was having a hard time keeping people and they didn't have replacement. If somebody missed a day or had to miss a week or whatever, they didn't have anybody to replace Mm -hmm. them. And it got to where I just, you know, I couldn't do it anymore. And so I started looking for what they call group homes for Nikki because she is so medically fragile She has to be in what is called a medically fragile home. And these are very few and far between. But fortunately, I was able to find one that is 10 minutes away from my house. Oh, my goodness. And so this July, it will be two years that Nikki has been living in her new home. She has done wonderful, Mm. not saying that there wasn't some bumps along the road, Mm -hmm. because Nikki and I had been together for so many years, it was hard on both of Mm -hmm. us. I was able to help her transition, and she has done really well, and four months after Nikki moved into her home, um, Travis and I were married. So, we had (laughs) dated, well, we had dated 15 years. So, you're still newlyweds. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> very much.
1: Oh, that's that. That's a perfect romantic romantic story. Thank you. That's well.
2: Nobody really can it. say that I rushed into it this time. No, it wasn't. Three months. <laughs> and anything else you want to share
1: about anything in summary?
2: Just that I want to encourage people to, um, you know, even though you're going through, you may be going through things that do what you can, even if it's just little things towards your goal, you know, don't give up because we can't see what's going to happen down the road. And just because something hasn't happened at that point in your life doesn't mean that it can't happen. And I was 57 when my first book was published. And I now teach at writers' conferences. Um, I have given keynote speeches. I travel all over the country. And so, you know, just don't give up on your dream.
1: That's right. It, the timing ends up being perfect, even though it might not have been your timing to begin with, right? It ends right, up being perfect right. timing. Thank you for that. And thank you for the story. You are a great storyteller. What What that tells me is that you want to, people to get out there and get your books because obviously you're this good of a storyteller there's going to be a lot lot of fun and maybe some tears in the book too or they're or... they're
2: my la- mostly okay. you're going to be laughing <laughs> good
1: thank you so much deborah i really appreciate everything you shared today and for what you uh you opened up your heart to us you opened up your life and And underscored the fact, like you said, that no matter what you're going through, we still can be creative, we still can maintain keeping our goals in front of us, not losing sight of that, and push no matter what, because eventually you're going to get there. And you have gotten there, and you are now successful and happy. And my hat, I tip it to
2: you. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. I've I've, I've enjoyed being here today. Okay.